Well, the rest of us, we are, we are going to be going to the very last book in the Old Testament. How many of you are encouraged about this? Man, I sure am. I wasn't sure we were going to get there. And, you know, we are we're approaching the, the final book uh, of the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, think about that. Turn there. Look, I mean, in my Bible, look at what we have covered. Wow. And the last 17 weeks being in the prophets. How many of you have been both encouraged and discouraged by going through the prophets these last 17 weeks? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, it has been an amazing journey. And, and as we have looked at this, we are, we are coming to this final book. And Malachi is, is kind of a, a pivotal book as we close out the Old Testament and we transition into the New Testament. It's, it's going to be about 400 years before God will speak through a prophet again. The next prophet to come is going to be John the Baptist. And he's the one who's preparing the way for that promised Messiah. His message, his, his heart for, for Jesus and saying, look, he's the one who says, behold. Meaning, look, fix your gaze on Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist. But in the meantime, we come to Malachi delivering God's message. He's going to declare of a messenger who will come. The one. And that messenger is, is going to be Christ. God's Word in the flesh. He, he talks about the coming messenger that's going to prepare the way being John the Baptist. And, and it serves as a bridge between this Old Testament and New Testament. I tell you what, I'm really, really excited to get into the Gospels. I mean, those are exciting, right? But in order to truly appreciate the message of the Gospels, you and I need a book like Malachi. Malachi is, is going to take us to examine our hearts. Look, look at chapter uh, 1, verse 1. This is how the book opens. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Those are the first words. If you remember and go back to the, the book of Nahum, when God was talking to the, to the nation um, and the city of Nineveh, you remember that? An oracle, oh, it's not there. Bounce back real quick. An oracle is not a good thing. In fact, we see this word oracle used throughout the prophets, don't we? Okay, you can advance now. I just wanted to point to that word oracle. Because it's not a word that we use often in, in our language, in our vocabulary, in our day-to-day -day conversation. But it is a message that bears a heavy burden. And in this case, God's heart is burdened for the hearts of His people. 
This oracle is not coming to a Gentile pagan nation like Nineveh. This oracle is coming to God's people. And it, and it has a heavy tone. Some of you can remember times where maybe your father called you into the room. I've done this with my children. I've told them, sit down. We need to talk. They don't like that. There's this look of concern. And instantly, the wheels start turning, don't they? What did I do? What did my sibling do? Are we in trouble? How can I get out of this? And instantly you start thinking of excuses before you even know what is going to be said. And God is sitting His children down. And He's going to be talking to them with a heavy tone. I like the way Wilkinson uh, summarized this oracle. He says, God's appeal in this oracle was that the people and priests, we're not just talking to the nation of Israel, right? This is also their spiritual leaders, that the people and priests would stop, pause, to, to realize their lack of blessing was not caused by God's lack of concern. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You're like, God, what's going on? And this is not a message on if you do this, you can manipulate God to do this. Don't, don't belittle our God so much that you think you can manipulate him. But God was saying there are certain things you're concerned about that I'm not doing, and really you need to look at yourself. Wilkinson goes on, he goes, but their own compromise and disobedience to the covenant law brought this. When they repent, return to God with sincere heart, the obstacles will be removed and allow God's divine favor upon them. See, the truth is, is sometimes our lives, our actions, our hearts are the greatest obstacle in our relationship with the Lord and in this life. Malachi is God's messenger. His name means my messenger or messenger of Yahweh. That's what his name is. I mean, that's an intimidating thing. Oh, watch out. Here comes Malachi, God's messenger. Wonder what he's going to say today. We know very little about Malachi other than his name. But we know that in his book, he delivers God's message. There's 55 verses in this book. It's an easy read, but out of those 55, do you realize 47 of those verses are God speaking to his people? The other verses are God's people responding. Guess who gets the greatest word in this book? God. And he gets the last word. 
But not only is his messenger delivering God's message, we also see that his messenger declares that there's going to be two other messengers coming. One being the very son of God who will deliver the message of God in the flesh. I love how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is a communicating God, and he sends his messenger. But it also speaks of another messenger, one who would prepare the way, prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. The messenger. There is a rebuke, yet we, we see a... A, a conversation kind of flowing through this book. And the conversation is going to cause the people to look at their hearts. Because if you looked at Israel, they would look very, very religious. We've gotten into that practice even in the American church. We are so good at the out word appearance the religious look but as God looks at his people Malachi will deeply probe into their problems of hypocrisy how many of you have ever heard someone say oh you know those church people they're so hypocritical yeah and I'm usually the first one to go yep we are yep I am and you know what? You're right. And it is absolutely wrong, and it is sin. And thank goodness we have a Savior who came to do something about my sin. Don't try to deny it. But truth be told, they're hypocritical in their lives as well, aren't they? It's a heart condition, hypocrisy. As, as you look through Israel, you would see infidelity. There was mixed marriages. There was divorce, false worship, arrogance. And it was all a heart issue. The nation had become so tainted with sin that they no longer truly could have an impact as God desired. You look at your life sometimes and wonder, God, why am I not having an impact in people's lives? Why don't I have the impact that maybe so-and-so has or someone else has or, or whatnot? Well, maybe there's, there's a need to look at the heart. God knows our hearts. Did you know that? I forget that often. I do. God addresses the heart. Did you know he knows what you're thinking? Mm -hmm. He does. I, I appreciate what Hebrews says. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Not just the heart, the intentions. 
look at what Psalms, psalmist writes. He says, for the, he knows, that's being God, the secrets of the heart. You can come here on a Sunday morning and you can fool everyone around you. You can even fool your spouse, your family, your pastor. I'm easily fooled sometimes. But we don't fool God. It's interesting from the other prophets, and remember we, we looked at it, and they had just come out of Babylon, and, and they were rebuilding the temple, and God was instituting worship, and he wanted their true worship. Remember that? And they're going through the motions. It's been almost a hundred years since they've come out of captivity. A hundred years since, well, they were disciplined in Babylon. Generations have passed. Maybe the great-great-grandparents remember some of it. But here's a religious nation, a nation that's almost 1,500 years old at this point, and God delivers his message. The question is, will they listen to his message? The question for you and I is, will we listen to the message of Malachi? I'd encourage you, if you're not there, to turn there. And as we look at Malachi, we, we see this, this overview. We see a cycle that is repeating over and over in the book. The first part of the cycle is God makes a claim. He makes a claim about the people, about their heart. And the people are like, really good? Is that really the case? How are we doing that? And they, they try to give a defense. And then God answers them. Be careful. When you question God, he might answer. You might not like what you hear. And God answers them in vivid detail. And we don't see the people respond. God gets the final word. The first claim that, that God says to them is, I love you. Well, isn't that a good claim? God says to the people, I love you. Look at what the people say. Verse 6, chapter 1. We see this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priest, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Oops, I'm in the wrong passage. Sorry about that, Andrew. I'm like, this is not, I looked at the wrong notes here. That is the other verse. We'll get to that one next. I'm like, this is not ringing true. We'll go to verse 2. Ah, that's going to be better. And it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolate desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That right there can be a whole sermon because we'd have to go and look at at Esau and, and his descendants. We've already looked at Edom. God had some words to say for Edom, didn't he? But God's saying, listen, Israel, I've loved you. And they're like, how have you loved us? Because I chose you. I didn't choose you because you deserved it. I chose you because I love you. I love you. I am bringing my promise through you. I'm bringing my Messiah through you. I've given you my law. I've given you all this. I love you. They're like, hmm. You know? We ask the same questions sometimes, don't we? God, how are you loving me? Look at my life. It's so hard. God's like, look, I sent my son. I've given you my word. I've given you a relationship. There's an inheritance. I love you. And the people are like, eh. The next one here, this, now these verses will actually make more sense, okay, is you dishonor me. You dishonor me. And look at now these verses will make sense in dishonor rather than love. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. The actions. They were were bringing sacrifices, right? And God had a standard for the sacrifice. An unblemished lamb. Why? Because it was a picture of his son to come. But they would look at their flocks and go, "Mm, that one's about to die. Might as well give that one to God, right? He won't mind. And they offer that. We don't live in the day of sacrifices. Jesus Christ offered the final sacrifice once for all. But do we do that? Do we give God the leftovers? Do we give God what's, well, I don't need that. I've often asked the question of people, because so often, you know, as a pastor, they, they let me know, oh, pastor, I won't be there uh, this week because of this and, and such. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Pastor, I won't be able to make the prayer meeting because of this. Pastor, I can't serve here because of this. And so on and so on and so on. And I'm not saying that we, we come to, to church and if you don't, you're a horrible person. I don't, I'm not saying that, but it does indicate sometimes, right? 
How many time, things in our life do we say, you know what, I can't go to that because I've made worshiping God a priority in my life. I'm going to have to cancel that because, you know, I have this time set aside for God. Whoa. What a bold statement that would be to the world, wouldn't it? Whoa, 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 you're canceling this to go worship God? Can't you worship God anywhere? Yeah, I can, but you know what? I've designated that for Him. And they were to take their flock and find the best and say, that's God's. Instead, they found the leftovers. And we are just as guilty of dishonoring Him with our leftovers. The pieces. They were unfaithful to the covenant. In verses 10 through 16 of chapter 2, we see that, that God reminds them of the covenant that, that He established with them. The covenant all the way back to Abraham. He reminds them that I gave you the law. You know what pleases me. You know what I want and expect from you. Yet, they were unfaithful to it. Do you realize they were, they were marrying pagan women? Women who would bring in other gods. Like, well, God, we're loving them. We're, we're trying to be accepting God. And God's like, no, I am a jealous God. You worship me and me alone. And they were unfaithful to that covenant. They were hypocritical in their repentance. God would say no, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Have you ever been hypocritical to God in your, your repentance? I have. Have you ever prayed to God trying to impress Him with your words? I have. Like I could impress God with my words, right? When He's looking at a heart stained and tainted, that has no remorse whatsoever. Look at verses 13 and 14 of, of chapter 2. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They go and they weep. Tears. Oh, we're so good at looking repentant, aren't we? God, I'm so sorry. I'll even go and I'll go to both services, God. I'm sorry. God, I'll even go to the prayer meeting. Please forgive me. And we try to impress God. We go in prayer. We pray all these eloquent things before God. We don't really mean a lick of it. I was praying one time, trying to repent and, and sound sorry. And it was like God just... You know, God's never talked to me audibly. In all honesty, it would probably terrify me if He did. But, but it was like at that moment, God was just saying, Jen, 
Don't, don't waste my time with these words. I stop right there. I'm like, all right, God. Here's the truth. And here's the thing. God already knew the truth. But I had to tell him. Which means I had to recognize my heart. Look at verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Do you realize? God's looking at their hearts. He's looking at their relationships, their marriages. The covenant that they vowed to one another, and God looks at that, and and He sees divorce running rampant. And they gave spiritual reasons for it. Justifying themselves for their own lust. Their own sin. And God's like, no. I am a covenant relationship God. I made a promise with you, God says. A covenant. You enter into a covenant relationship with your wife. And you hold to it. The world is watching. We just started this last week. Uh, marriage uh, Bible study. I am so excited about it. In six weeks, we'll try to start another one and so forth. But we're looking at a covenant relationship. God's saying, you breaking that covenant with your wife does not reflect my image, my heart. Because I am a covenant-keeping God. And He addresses the covenant that He has presented to them. And then they question God's justice. They're like, God, you don't deal with evil. Oh, how quickly they forgot Babylon, didn't they? How quickly they forgot Edom. How quickly they forgot Nineveh. God, you don't do it. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Imagine wearying God with what you're saying to them. He says, you've wearied me, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Can you imagine looking at God and saying that? When you look at the pages of Scripture, they have all of this. We have spent 17 weeks in the prophets alone. Well, 16, this makes 17, but... And we see a God who is a just God. We see a God who deals with evil, and they're like, well, we don't see it. When they're looking to someone else's instead of their own hearts. Oh, how easy it is to look at other sin. God not only declares He's a just God, but He shares what He's going to do once and for all for that sin, that evil. 
I, I love this. Look at look at verse one of, of chapter three. One and two are just I love this. God says, Behold. That means look, pay attention, observe this. You need to see this. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist. Okay? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ himself, the one, the messenger of the covenant, the one, the promise God gave, the Messiah, is coming. And he'll be God's messenger. It goes, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner, a fire, and like the fuller's soul. He's coming. Do you see that? I, I love that we see that God is declaring his messenger, messengers are coming. And the message is going to be a tough one. Remember, the day of the Lord, that's not an easy thing. That's not the cuddly, cozy, hey, let's get together with Jesus. The first time he came on a donkey, but the day of the Lord, he is riding a white horse into battle, already victorious. And then the, the other claim, you are robbing me. We'll hold off on reading all the verses, but in verses 8 through 12, we see that the people are robbing God, and they're like, how are we robbing you? God, you are rich beyond all belief. You have everything, right, God? So how are we robbing you? God says, you're not even bringing the tithes to the temple. You're like, oh, no, this is a sermon on, on tithing and giving. No, it's not, actually. But it was being neglected. God had told them that they were to do this, that a first tenth of all they had belonged to God. That's pretty gracious, don't you think? that God would let them have 90% and just ask for 10? And it was to be an act of worship. And God tells them, test me in this. I will just bless you beyond belief if you actually obey me in this one thing. They're like, no, can't trust you on that one, God. Sorry. I love it. When we look at the tithe, we really don't see tithe mentioned in the New Testament. Somebody says, praise the Lord! Yeah, isn't that great? God says in the New Testament, it all belongs to him. It's true. And you know, if we have that mindset, whatever God asks us to give of his, we're like, okay, God, it's yours anyway. But they were not obeying him in this act of worship. He says, be faithful in this, and I will bless you. We have to just come to a point in our lives, in our hearts, because I know there's people that probably give tithe out of a religious obligation. I mean, they do it down to the penny. They're like, no, 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 we can't round up. That's a tithe. There's no heart in it. There's no act of worship in it. It's a religious practice. 
God says he loves a cheerful giver. Because when one is cheerful in it, it reflects the heart. God is dealing with a heart issue here. And then God says, you despise serving me. They didn't like the consequences for their actions. They didn't like that that God was looking and calling their worship pathetic. Has God ever looked at your worship and considered it pathetic? I think sometimes we get so comfortable with the show that we forget the heart. I love that song that says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Because God has never looked for a show. My goodness, he's in heaven. You go to Revelation, look at his throne room. You think we're going to impress him with a show? I think not. Where he's impressed is when our hearts engage in worship. But their sin clouded that. Would not allow them. And so instead of looking at their hearts, they look at God and blame Him. God's response, it's to two groups. And I caution you to truly consider what group are you? Do we find ourselves in the group of complainers? The ones who engage in in a lifestyle that looks just like the world with some religious tones to it? Or do we find ourselves in the remnant? You know, it's interesting, that word remnant never means a large portion. It's usually very small. But there's a remnant who obey. A remnant who serve Him. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Look at this. God talks about this remnant. They, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I appear, prepare my own presence. Sorry, possession. By the way, that may sound awkward to you for God to call you his possession. But think about this. He paid for you. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. That means he owns you. You're his sheep. You're his lamb. He's your shepherd. We are his possession. And he purchased us at a great, great price. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Do you try to impress him or do you serve him? Are you part of the large group that's popular and comfortable? Are you part of that remnant that's really awkward? Because let's be honest, serving God in this day and age is an awkward thing. It's anything but comfortable. 
And one who truly serves God will stand out. Malachi, God's word says, this is recorded for you to know, for you to understand these things. I am recording these things. He says, the day of the Lord will come. He says, for the one group, the ones who don't serve, the ones who don't desire to, to engage in that service and worship of God, for them, the day of the Lord, not a good thing. For those who do that remnant, it is a day of joy and great anticipation. There will be judgment, yes, but God will deal with sin once for all, and he will judge it. I love how the, the book of Malachi closes. It's beautiful. It's not encouraging. You're like, well, that's weird. I will. It's an oracle. But look at, look at what Malachi does. Look what God does. Verse 4. Remember. Do you know what that word means? To remember something. Oh, you thought I was going to go deep and philosophical on you, huh? No, God is bringing to their remembrance. He says, I don't want you to forget this. Remember the law of Moses. That's the Torah, the first five books, the law. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So they're to look and they're to remember the Torah. They are to remember what God has given them there. And then he says this, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse the end you're like really that's how the Old Testament ends yep that's how the last prophet ends yep Remember the Torah, remember the prophets, Elijah being classified by some the greatest prophet ever. It's no wonder Elisha is like, God, give me a double portion of what you gave to Elijah. And God did some pretty cool things for Elisha. You know, this oracle wraps up causing the people to look at the Torah, the law, look at the prophets that God sent. And Malachi closes this way. Malachi closes offering hope. Offering hope. You're like, where? Well, he says, there's one coming. See, the heart condition... God was looking at their hearts through all of this, but the heart condition is a human condition. We sit here 
almost 2,500 years later, and guess what? The heart condition of the people is still the same. There's still a sin issue. God sent His messenger, the Word in the flesh. God sent His messenger to Israel. Will they listen? God sent His messenger, Jesus Christ. Will you and I listen? says he'll heal the hearts of his people. The hearts. See, what's interesting is when we look at the hearts, it's usually the heart that come the outflow of our actions. But even if we can, well, convince those around us of one thing, we, we can't fool God. I want to take you one place, a little glimpse of next week. If you turn the pages over to Matthew, Matthew 17. It's an amazing time. The disciples are learning from Jesus. They're coming off of the mountain talking. I appreciate that. Jesus enjoyed hikes, walks. You don't see him getting on an airplane or a car. He walked a lot of places. You can talk a lot when you do that. But in verse 9, look at what it says. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. God's like, don't, don't share this part yet. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're going back to Malachi. They're like, why does the scripture say that? Why have the scribes recorded and, and kept this for us? Why? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming. And will restore all things, just as, I, just as I say to you, that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Then he says this, So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The very Spirit of God that came upon Elijah had come upon John the Baptist. The message was there. God fulfilled His Word, His promise. Everything was set. But they would reject him. You know, they they had the Old Testament. You and I, we have the whole Word of God. We can read it, we can know it, we can study it. Our, our Sunday studies starting next week is, is going to open with, with looking at studying God's Word and the importance of it. But as we engage in that do we allow God's Word and His truth 
to impact our life. Do we? Do we allow it to pierce our soul and spirit? Is it impacting your heart? Or is it a religious function that you go through? God's not fooled. He's never been mocked. God knows. The Old Testament ends looking at a heart condition. A heart condition that man could do nothing about. Do you realize man still can't do anything about that heart condition? Other than turn to the one who did something about it. Next four weeks, we're in the Gospels. We are going to look at what God did about that heart condition. But you can know today, you don't have to wait till next week. You can understand that Jesus Christ did come. Jesus Christ did take care of that sin of the heart. And because of that, we can have a relationship with Him. I encourage you, if you have not done that before, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, to do that today. The heart condition has not changed. In fact, we're born with that. But you know what? God Himself has not changed either. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, even that precious little baby making that cooing noise, guess what? Is precious. Still born into sin. In need of a Savior. And what a blessing. The babies, the children are here. Because they need to know too. You need to know. I need to know. We all need that Savior. We close looking at a heart condition. And I ask that we just close now looking to God, the One who dealt with that. Will you pray with me? God, thank You. Thank You that You have done something so amazing, so, so powerful, so gracious as sending Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, that You would give us Your message, Your Word through the Scriptures, that we could know You. God, I pray that today we would not question, we would not make excuses. God, we would take You at Your Word and say, thank You. God, that we would declare that truth to others as well. God, may we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name.